Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's medical director. I'm here with our awesome co-hosts, Dr. Patil Armenian and Dr. Sajin Bakta. Hello. Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking about epistaxis. And I also want to give a special thanks to Dr. Delvin Atkins, one of our emergency medicine residents who really helped with the content behind this podcast today. Patil, why don't you tell us about epistaxis? So epistaxis, otherwise known as nosebleeds, um, are one of the most common ear, nose, and throat emergencies that present to the emergency department. They're responsible for one in 200 ED visits and about one-third of otolaryngology-related ED visits. Epistaxis is divided into primary and secondary causes. Primary causes lack a clearly identifiable precipitant and are sometimes called idiopathic. This kind of means we don't really know why it happened, and these are about 85% of cases. Secondary causes uh, include anticoagulant use, tumors, vascular abnormalities, minor trauma, or recent surgery, and these account for the remaining 15% of cases. Risk factors associated with epistaxis include age greater than 50 years, anticoagulant or antiplatelet use, congestive heart failure, hypertension, diabetes, and alcohol use. And one ED-based study found that 61% of patients with epistaxis were on anticoagulants or antiplatelet agents. So that means although there are a lot of nosebleeds out there, if it's bad enough to end up requiring transport and being in the emergency department, many of those are on these anticoagulant or antiplatelet agents that are stopping them from clotting their blood normally. And I think one of the more common myths out there is that having very high blood pressure causes a lot of nosebleeds. And I hear that a lot from patients and even from other providers. And actually, although having a high blood pressure can increase the rate of your bleeding if you already have a nosebleed, doesn't necessarily cause you to have a nosebleed. And so we often hear patients say that, oh, my blood pressure got really high and then I got a nosebleed from that. And it's not necessarily that that causes a nosebleed, but once it starts bleeding, having a high blood pressure will make it a little bit harder to stop. Okay, so how do nosebleeds occur? Basically, the vessels of the nasal mucosa are ruptured, and the vast majority of these are arterial in origin and involve an area of blood vessels called Kieselbox plexus, um, which is in the anterior part of the nose. Now, this is a network of five arteries in the nose that supply the nasal septum, and the terminal branches of a lot of these arteries make up Kieselbox plexus. Now, these arteries include the anterior ethmoidal, posterior ethmoidal, sphenopalatine, greater palatine, and superior labial arteries. This watershed area is located at the entrance of the nasal cavity and is subject to extremes of heat and cold, high and low moisture, and easily traumatized. So basically, it's just that you have so many arteries in this front part of the nose. And I think we've all known like the minute you get like a really dry nose, sometimes they get really fragile and this even tiniest bit of trauma can make them bleed. Now, posterior bleeds are a little bit of a different beast. They involve the posterior and superior terminal branches of the sphenopalatine and posterior ethmoidal arteries. And they're really difficult to control and are often associated with bleeding from both nostrils or into the nasopharynx where it is swallowed or coughed up 
presenting as hemoptysis. So sometimes patients will be presenting with vomiting up blood, but really it's that they have a nosebleed and they've been swallowing all the blood that they're now vomiting up. It can generate a large flow of blood into the pharynx and has a higher risk for airway compromise. The risk for aspiration of blood is also increased with posterior bleeds. So whereas with anterior bleeds, usually you'll just see blood coming out of one nostril, posterior bleeds might be both nostrils and going down the back of the throat. I think this is key to recognize when we get to the assessment that when you're plugging their nose on the front and holding pressure, you can still see blood dripping down the back of their throat if it is a posterior bleed. So that's kind of a good lead into assessment. So of course, you're always going to assess your ABCs, you know, ensure your proper PPE. And even before COVID, you would wear eye protection on these cases, right? A lot of them sneeze, cough, blow their nose, and blood seems to go a lot of places when you have a very brisk nasal bleed. Suction could be helpful in assessing the airway, especially in these brisk bleeds. Also, swallowed blood can cause that stomach irritation that Patil talked about, and then they start vomiting, and the vomiting plus the continued bleeding can compromise the airway. So be prepared to need your adjuncts for your airway, prepared to suction, and then if you start hearing a noisy airway, you know, that could be a sign of it getting occluded. You're going to assess their depth of breathing and respiratory rate. If necessary, you can use high-flow oxygen via a non-rebreather because a nasal cannula is really not going to work since you have all this blood in your nose. Really good news is that most nosebleeds should not affect the patient's hemodynamics, right? Their blood pressure should be fine, heart rate should be fine, because most nosebleeds are pretty benign. However, the extremes of age, right? Very young, very old, um, if they're on a lot of medicines like blood thinners, they can develop hypovolemia if this has been going on for a long time. I've seen patients present and say, oh, it's been bleeding for four hours at home or five hours. Now you could lose a significant amount of blood loss. So if you feel like that's the case, always obtain large bore IV access. You're going to monitor the patient's hemodynamics and transport. And that patient's history, right? What meds are on. So really ask them about anticoagulant use, aspirins, NSAIDs, any topical steroids. For example, if a patient has taken anticoagulant, a reversal agent may be considered if we cannot get control of the bleeding in the hospital. This information is very helpful to the ED treatment team. You also can, of course, monitor their level of consciousness. This can give a clue to how severe the hemorrhage is and then keep them warm to prevent coagulopathy. Now, if epitax is caused by major trauma, you know, they got a car accident, now their nose is bleeding, you're always worried about other facial fractures, other things that are going on, not just a simple nosebleed. So let's move on to management of these nosebleeds. The good news is that most cases of epistaxis can be managed conservatively with simple steps. Good, effective first aid should stop about 90 to 95% of nosebleeds. The first thing we want to do is position the patient correctly. If you're not worried about any cervical spine injury, positioning is key. Make sure to sit the patient up and we want to avoid laying them flat as blood can pool in the posterior throat and that can increase uh, blood in the airway. Typically, we want to lean the patient forward to minimize swallowing blood and ask them to spit blood out of their mouth. Encourage the patient not to swallow the blood, again, as this can be really irritating for the stomach. Now, to try and get control of the bleeding, first, we ask the patient to blow their nose to remove any poorly formed clots. If possible, you can have the patient apply direct pressure to their nose by firmly pinching the cartilaginous tip with their thumb and pointer finger. Pressing or pinching the bony parts of the nose all the way at the top will not really tampen on the blood vessels and will not really help with controlling the bleeding. 
And as with all bleeding, you want to maintain pressure for at least 10 to 15 minutes without releasing it to check to see if it's still bleeding. Um, It's really important to keep that pressure on for as long as possible before disrupting your pressure. You know, I want to jump in and actually really hit home Sajin's point. You know, a lot of people hold pressure for maybe 10 to 15 seconds and let go and look and say, hey, is it still bleeding? And put pressure again. Remember, with all bleeding, this is an arterial source usually. you got to hold pressure. So I always recommend to our patients, even the ED, to hold pressure for five minutes, stare at the clock, then you can check. But really, he's right. It should be 10 to 15 minutes before you start looking. As Danielle was mentioning earlier, it may be necessary to suction the posterior oropharynx while holding that nasal pressure and inclining the patient's head slightly forward to determine whether there's active posterior bleeding down the back of the throat while you're pinching the tip of the nose. You can use ice packs to the nape of the neck. There's some mechanism theoretically that produces a reflex vasoconstriction of the nasal mucosa, but there's poor evidence to support this. Now, If the bleeding isn't controlled with direct pressure in about 15 to 20 minutes, or if there's blood coming from both nostrils, this could be a sign of a posterior bleed. And really the best way to control posterior bleeding is by packing the nose. Now, we typically try to avoid this in the pre-hospital setting because it's associated with higher rates of complications like pressure necrosis, infection, or hypoxia. Also, putting packing way back deep into the back of the nose can cause a nasal cardiac reflex, which is sudden bradycardia. There are a lot of things that can go wrong, so we typically do this in a monitored setting in the emergency department. Now, in the emergency department, we have some medications that we can try. Typically, we start with a topical nasal spray, and that's something called oxymetazoline. And this is a nasal spray also commonly known as Afrin, that helps to constrict some of the blood vessels in the nose. There are certain EMS agencies that have access to this medicine, so if you do, that's a great first step. Um, Sometimes I will apply the Afrin spray and then have them clamp their nose for 10 minutes and then come back to check on them later. Other things we can try, TXA, or tranexamic acid. We hear about this medicine a lot in major bleeding or major trauma, but you can actually apply this topically as well. You can soak some gauze in the medicine, put the gauze into the nose around that area that you think is bleeding, and that can help clot the blood and stop the bleeding. Further things that we can try, we have silver nitrate sticks in the emergency department that can help cauterize the area of bleeding if you see what's going on. Again, with a lot of these things, there's uh, potential complications. You can have damage to the nasal septum or perforation of the nasal septum if you're over-aggressive with some of these therapies. Um, So obviously, again, we like to do this in a monitored setting um, where you have backup and help available. Um, And then last but not least is the nasal packing, which is a big balloon uh, tampon that we put in the nose and we inflate it with air and that should help tamponade the bleed. Let's jump to protocol review. You know, here in SEMSA, the Central California EMS Agency, we actually do not have a specific epistaxis nosebleed protocol. Um, And some agencies do, but most of them include just what we talked about. You know, you're going to watch the airway and you're going to start an IV if you feel like they're getting hypovolemic. Um, You may experience epistaxis during trauma cases. Of course, then you'd be on a trauma protocol. Um, But really, we have no specific protocol here at SEMSA. All right, let's jump to summary take-home points. What do we want everyone to remember about epistaxis, nosebleeds, Sajin? 
Uh, simple pressure on the tip of the nose for at least 10 minutes is usually effective in controlling the bleeding. Patio. Uh, definitely ask uh, for their medication history because it's really useful to know if they're on any anticoagulant or antiplatelet agents. And my take on point is most cases of epistaxis are benign. So if this happens to your friend, your kid, your colleague, not a big deal. But if they're calling 911, it's probably not benign. It's been going on a while. So really just have a high index of suspicion. We worry about these patients becoming unstable if they've been bleeding a lot. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.